Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz, for this final episode on child rearing, child chinuch. This is going to be a Q&A session. The last Q&A on marriage proved to be very popular and the questions have been coming in. So I'm just going to throw you in the deep end and start with something very relevant to everyone, which is sibling rivalry. Happens in every family. Please give us some direction. Thank you, first of all, for inviting me back to talk about some relevant Jewish subjects. Yes, in the previous two sessions, we spoke about love and discipline for children and the goals we have for their character building and so on. And as you say, we received a number of questions. Sibling rivalry, very common, uh, as you say, indeed. And I think the general principle, and here I'm referring to a great expert, namely my wife, (laughs) who is uh, very experienced in this field, and I think, she, I think she's quite correct. The general principle, I think, is to let them work it out on their own as far as possible. Now, when they're using meat cleavers, you know, and electric <laughs> cattle prods, then you probably ought to step in. But as long as they're not dangerous and they are capable of working it out themselves, a judicious remaining out of sight can often help. You know, it's when they see you that the battle gets inflamed. He started it, you know, and the child, she started it. The child appeals to you to take their side in the battle. If you're around, they'll almost certainly do it. If you're out of sight and they know that you're expecting them to work it out, very often that works and they learn how to resolve issues on their own. The second piece of advice I would give is that there's some inevitable sibling rivalry that'll happen in certain ages and unfortunately can sometimes lead to damage. Strained relationships going forward where the kids say things to each other or do things that can leave you know bitterness in the relationship. And if it's protracted, it can cause undue tension in the family and sometimes even harm relationships going forward. Although that's unusual, usually as kids grow up, you know, those things melt away. I think a wise piece of advice here for a parent is to head it off at the pass. In other words, you know this. This is not a surprise. You know that this five-year-old and that seven-year-old, you know they're always at each other's throats. You know the tensions. Why let them get into that situation time and again just wears everyone down? So, you know, they come home from school. You can head it off at the pass. You can engage one in some activity that they like. You can send another one to a friend. The bad news is that there can be a lot of tension and it can be very difficult. The good news is it goes in phases. And if you can get through the next phase till the child is six months older, a year older, it'll be something else. You'll have a new problem to deal with. So I think a very wise advice here, of course, if you can fix it and help it and explain and teach them how to behave, that's fine. But if there's inevitable youthful immaturity that is expressing itself in in battles, as, as long as it's not dangerous, you can let them work it out. But when you see it's dysfunctional and causing them stress and you stress, the wisest thing is rather than solving the problem by changing people who are yet too immature to be changed at that stage, there's a lot of prevention you can do, which is often much easier, although it takes a little preparation, much easier and more successful than trying to put out the flames when they're already lit. A child that has gone what some would call off the derech or as we call off the beaten path, 
which proves to be usually very difficult for families, especially in the ultra-Orthodox community. How does one deal with it? There's obviously a million questions that come up. Should one discipline him very strictly at home? Does one let him do his own thing? Can you give us a bit of guidance on... Yes, unfortunately, this is a feature of the modern age. And as we all know, it's been amplifying and expanding since the problem or movement began in the last couple of decades, it is gaining momentum. Kids find it easier to do because so many others have done it as well. Yes, it's a certainly a real modern problem. I think a few guideline points that experience shows to be useful should, should be made here. One is, of course, diagnosis. Diagnosis. When a child is acting out, as we say, either religiously or in general, this isn't only a religious issue. Sometimes it's a, a drug problem or a personality problem or a you know, behavior problem isn't necessarily directed against, you know, religious values, although often they do go in hand in hand. The first thing is diagnosis. Is this simply a cultural phenomenon? Is it a friendship problem? Is it peer group pressure? Is it a deep-seated psychological or emotional issue in the child? Is it an expression of a family issue? I think you're irresponsible as a parent if you don't give some thought to diagnosis. Speaking as a doctor, we try to make a diagnosis before we think about, about treatment. Very often it is a cultural phenomenon and kids find uh, the religious world repressive and they they want to explore and, and there's a glitzy, tempting world out there. That is true. But sometimes there is an issue. The first responsibility of a parent is to make an accurate diagnosis. In that area, the first question to ask yourself, is there something serious or dangerous going on? Is there behind the scenes an undiscovered abuse situation either on the part of a teacher or a sibling or a family member? That's an important question to ask. Is there a medical problem going on behind the scenes? Sometimes it boils down to something as simple as a vision problem or a hearing problem. The child's acting out, being misbehaving in class, and, and somebody's too young to tell you. And mature, a mature pediatric or pediatric psychological assessment can sometimes uh, yield wonders when it turns out that the child is not hearing well or they've got a concentration problem or, or whatever it is. This, of course, will take us into the tiger country of... ADD and ADHD should should be on medication. We can have another session on that. (laughs) But be that as it may, I think that's the first question. The second point is you're dealing with this child, you've made your diagnosis, and uh, the child is being difficult. They're too immature to toe the line as you would wish in your home environment or your class environment. I think there are a couple of very important rules for parents here. One is that parents often tend to drop all discipline, all rules, and almost all interaction with the child. In other words, a child's acting out, they refusing to go to shul, to daven, to pray, kashrut, they resent wearing the kippah, whatever it is. Very often when parents find themselves in that situation, many other things collapse as well. And the message I think here that's very important to note is that it's a parental obligation to maintain absolute and total control and discipline on all the things that you can what you can't turn a blind eye to because you're going to lose the battle anyway. But because you're losing the battle on many parameters doesn't mean you have to give up on others. So, for example, let's say behind closed doors on Shabbat, the child is doing things on their cell phone or whatever you don't want them to do. They're going to do that anyway. And therefore, battling that issue when they're going to do it where you don't see is just pointless. All you do is battle something unnecessarily and lose authority. But something you can maintain discipline on, that same child wants to come to the Shabbat table dressed inappropriately or whatever it is, absolutely not. You need to define the red line up to which you can function. Up to that line, there's no reason to give in. I'll say it again. 
whatever discipline and rules and behavior you can insist on and get away with, you ought to. First of all, it maintains a semblance of authority. And secondly, it's good for the child. The battles you're losing anyway, right? no matter what you do, there you need often to turn a judicious blind eye so that you're not simply battling an unwinnable battle and losing authority. But a child can just throw anything away. I mean, he could tell his parents, what are you going to do? Throw me out the house if I don't come down to the dining room table dressed inappropriately? You can say no supper, no shirt, no supper. Yes, you can do that. Why not? Absolutely. If And that's quite reasonable. To come to dinner with a shirt on or whatever it may be, if that's appropriate in this home, it's not a religious threat. That's quite reasonable. As I said in a previous session, it's my home and you need to respect that. Absolutely. But don't push those boundaries to an area where you don't have authority and you're not going to win that battle. You mentioned throwing a child out of the house. This is a question that we often ask. This child is acting out desperately, causing desperate unhappiness in the family. And one of the main concerns parents have, how it will affect the siblings as well. There's no question that the default position is not expelling a child from a house. No question. I'm not saying there may not be exceptions, but sometimes the child will want that and it's for their good and everyone will benefit. That is true. But the default position is to send a child out of the home and reject them because they don't toe the line religiously is a desperately unloving message for the child. And I'm not sure that the siblings gain much when they see that that is what's happening. It is often the case that even though the child is misbehaving and setting a terrible example within the family, it does not necessarily follow logically that all the children are going to go to pieces. It often not. Very often, the other children's peer group pressure is much more important to them than the bad influence they have from this particular child. Absolutely not. Sometimes they themselves are ashamed of it and won't tolerate it. So therefore, the basic assumption is that the child needs to be manifest. You show them unconditional love at the same time as maintaining all the disciplinary elements that you can. Absolutely. That's very important. My son, I have a son, Rabbi Yaakov Tetz, happens to be particularly talented at dealing with youngsters who have got, let's call it, issues and need special attention. He's very firm about the fact that in very few cases should the response be to eject the child from the home. Add one more point, if I may. Very often the process begins with unhappiness. The child's unhappy, their self-esteem, they're not achieving well. A child in an intense learning environment where that's the only thing that is respected, particularly in the ultra-Orthodox world, where they cannot express themselves in sport or in anything else at all, all they can do is learn. A child who doesn't learn well and doesn't enjoy it often is a recipe for disaster because they're not building their self-esteem in any other way and they're not doing anything else that interests them. One needs to be very careful about that. Such a child might do better in a slightly less orthodox environment. That may be better for their Judaism, not just for their general well-being. Another point that's very important to know, and I say this to parents always, the most important goal for a child who is not behaving correctly religiously is not to address the religious problem. It's to address the person. When the child is happy and thriving and growing, the religious side will follow naturally at some point. But if you push the religious buttons and the child's unhappy, everything will collapse. And therefore, the first agenda for a child, no matter where they're on the spectrum of religious behavior, is that they're happy and thriving. The first thing to ask about a school, do the children love it? Are they growing? Do the teachers love the children? Do the children love the school? They want to be there during the day. If yes, the religious stuff and the philosophy of the school and how much they learn, You should choose any day to send your child to a school where they learn very little, where they're happy and love learning, than to a school where they learn a lot and they hate it. And therefore, the first agenda is a well-adjusted, happy, thriving child. The religious agenda is, of course, very important, but it will not follow naturally unless the child is well-adjusted and happy. 
You mentioned before about the other siblings that they could potentially turn the other way and their peer pressure would cause them to resent it. But what if parents see openly the other siblings following? You know, why is he getting away with everything? They'll see that he has privileges. Well, now you have on your hands more than one child who has an off-the-direct type of a problem and it needs to be addressed. Yes, it's true that sometimes the influence can be so negative and so deliberate that you you may need to consider a separation. The separation children isn't always sending the child out of the home, although it may be. And let me point out the different ways of sending a child out of the home. One is a rejection. Another one is sending them to an institution, perhaps in Israel or some other place where it might be an ideal place for the child anyway. So that is sometimes a solution indeed. How does one bring out the uniqueness in every child? Every child, uh, you know, it's easy to bring up as a mess family, but every child is different. Every child has their own talents. How to bring out their special uniqueness? Yes, this is a good question, and it's particularly relevant in an orthodox world. You know, the atmosphere we give is one of a, a regimented behavior, dress. Black and white. Black and white in a very narrow sense that would seem to be building a personality that is very regimented and not unique. And that's the opposite of the truth. Judaism is designed within its regimented system to turn out flamingly individualistic people. May I suggest that we devote a session to talking about the question of individuality in Jewish theory and in practice how to become an individual and how to nurture children who are very, very clearly expressing their own unique talents because I don't think I can do justice to it in a couple of minutes. Okay, so we'll do that. People have asked about moving countries specifically for education. You know, some people will think move to Israel where there's very strong Jewish education. Some people will say move to Switzerland where there's very rigid education. Um, is that a factor to take into account? I would say that it's a factor, but it should not be the overriding factor. When it comes to children's education, generally the place to begin is where will the family be functional and happy? And surprising, it may be surprising, the first thing to consider probably is where the parents will be happy and functional. If you move a family to where you think it may be better for a child where the parents are going to be under terrible stress and tension and financial pressures and so forth, it doesn't bode well for the children's well-being either. And therefore, this is a family decision. Moving to Israel is wonderful if you can. It's a mitzvah in its own right. It has certain tremendous educational benefits, but it's fraught with difficulty as well. Fraught with difficulty. Children at particular ages coming from outside Israel to an Israeli system, we have seen that fraught with trouble and disaster many times. So there's a very, very personal and individualized decision that needs to be made. Moving countries simply for a child's educational benefit, I think is not the way to go unless many other factors aid and abet that decision. I think moving countries for a family is a thing where it needs to be put down in a hierarchy of variables on a chart audit correctly, audit correctly. You can't let all the variables juggle at the same time. There's, you can't make sense of that. So what are the priorities? Can we make a living? What are the financial? What will be the stresses on our family? The mitzvah value of living in Israel. And there's so many variables that each family needs to take into account. Moving for the purpose of education is certainly a very meritorious and important issue, but I don't think it should be the one overarching and single factor that makes a family's decision. Mm -hmm. What place does secular education have in the ultra-Orthodox circles? Again, this is a fraught question, and of course it is very culturally loaded. I think first of all we need to acknowledge that it's culturally specific. There are parts of the Orthodox world that do not tolerate almost any secular education, and of course you and I, Rabbi Mena, in this, in this session are not going to change the cultural attitudes to various segments of the, of the Jewish Orthodox world, and that needs to be respected. 
perhaps what ought to be said is that a family that is fluid in its loyalty, in other words, not clear where we should fit into which segment of the community, where should we move and where should we live, the luxury of that choice needs to be used to choose wisely when you choose a school for your children and a cultural milieu that you will fit into. If you're going to send your children to an ultra-Orthodox extreme environment where there's nothing secular, you need to be able to live that reality and make sure that they'll be happy and thriving and functional and be able to earn a living and so forth and so on down the line, and that's fine if that's your cultural reality. And I might add that that is necessary for the Jewish people as well. One great Rosh Hashiva of Mendel Weinbach, that Sully once put it to me like this, he said that um, I once asked him about sexual education in, in Israeli schools in Jerusalem, in the Haida system, in the religious, he said, absolutely not. No question. Absolutely not. We cannot tolerate any secular, virtually any secular education in the schools, in the Orthodox school system in Jerusalem. Why? Because the heart needs to pump pure blood. In other words, if you live in Rehovot or some other place, absolutely we can tolerate and talk about secular education together with Orthodox. But in Jerusalem, which is the heart, pumping the heart blood of the Jewish people, Torah needs to be pure. And if it's Torah only in the school system in Jerusalem, by the time it gets to Johannesburg and to Paris, it'll still be Judaism. Okay, now does that mean it's right for your child? Maybe not. So there's a broad Jewish people's perspective that we need to keep in mind here as well. But for your individual child, what is your family philosophy? What is your approach to life? What's your secular educational background? What's the reality you need to live in as an individual and as a family? I personally feel that children ought to be given a chance to have knowledge outside of Torah as well. I think it's very important for their Torah education as well. But it has to be culturally sensitive. When I lived in a certain community in Jerusalem, which was, let's call it for want of a better word, an ultra-Orthodox community, and my sons were in the Cheda system, where there was no secular education at all, I applied to the rabbi of the community to have some physics and chemistry taught in the school. His attitude was very interesting. Absolutely not. But to have classes after school was fine. In other words, to change the tone and the received tradition in our Cheda system, no. But when the kids come out from school, you want to send them. And I did. There happened to be a, a very accomplished physicist living in our community, and I organized for him to teach my son uh, chemistry and physics, and he loved it and was fine. That, I think, answers the question that people have. Surely the information isn't damaging. So you're saying it's not, it's not about the information, obviously, because so much of the Torah is full of maths and geography and everything. It's more the priority list. Indeed. So when it comes to neutral secular education, not culturally loaded, physics, chemistry, biology, geography, etc., I think it's an absolute tragedy that religious children don't know how the rain falls or how your body works or what digestion is or how your heart pumps blood. I think that's a major tragedy. And why shouldn't they learn that? The Gaon of Vilna was very well versed in all of these things. The Torah itself talks about the seven wisdoms that are handmaidens to the to the holy wisdom, talking about astronomy and music and even certain logical philosophy. Absolutely, why not? Absolutely. The Gaon was an accomplished mathematician, as we know. So if he could do it, why is it not legitimate? For, and therefore, yes, now there are wisdoms that are culturally loaded. If you send your children to study modern psychology, you'll have trouble. Because modern psychology and sociology and many other fields of endeavor today are very heavily nuanced in cultural ways. And that needs to be very sensitively taught. But we could certainly begin with the hard sciences of chemistry, mathematics, physics. Why not? Why not? A child who's sophisticated, has a sophisticated approach to certain mathematical issues will learn Torah better. Now, of course, there's a, a balance question. You don't want to take the prime time of the day, take them out of Torah study into something else. So each family has to find its own balance within its appropriate educational system. Going on from that, should parents teach their children about the facts of life? 
If yes, when the birds and the bees, is there a specific age? How graphic? How much should be said? Yes, this is also very heavily culturally loaded, I have to say. Again, we have a spectrum in the Orthodox world. There is an ultra-Orthodox segment that believes these things should not be really addressed until absolutely necessary at the very last moment. And the fact is it's worked over the years and over the centuries. And we are more broad, shall I say. I think it's an issue for families and schools to decide on a policy. It can be done delicately and in a refined fashion so that children are introduced to, to important biological concepts in a way that is meaningful and refined, absolutely. And I think it's also important to take into account what are the norms, what is a child being exposed to? If your child is, is in an environment where every child has a cell phone and graphics and images, for sure they're going to be shown things. No matter what you do, you, that needs a little preemptive education as well. The facts of the matter are that today there's almost no possibility of hermetically sealing a child's education. Once was the case that you could raise a child in an orthodox community where they saw very little of the outside world. Today you can, no matter what you do, you can raise your child speaking Yiddish only. For sure, some other child's going to have in his pocket some device on which he'll show your child absolutely anything and everything. Today I think we need a slightly broader and more creative preemptive approach to these things. I know the answer to this will probably also be on a very large spectrum, but should parents show any physical affection in front of their children? You mean physical affection for each other, not for the children. <laughs> yes, indeed. Parents should certainly show physical affection to their children. The question is, should husband and wife be holding hands, embracing, hugging exactly. each other, kissing yeah. each other in front of the children? This is a very, very important and real question. On the one hand, we don't want to model behavior that may be too suggestive or sensual for children at certain ages. On the other hand, we want them to learn that husband and wife need to show each other a lot mm. of affection and that physical affection is part of a marriage and we need to model that for children. And the question is the balance. Let me tell you a story. Once a group of us went into Rav Aaron Feldman, one of the great Rosh Hashivas of this generation, a towering figure in his own right and a, a go-to person for much of the, the modern world's Tarashkofer. He used to teach in Osamer and he was a very popular and mature teacher for the personalities of many generations of students coming through Osamech. And of course, Osamech students who are Balei Tshuva, there's a very relevant question. And many of them have histories of intimate relationships in the past, and they're moving into a world where there's no longer done. And, you know, how do you, many marriages were, were contracted at a time when the couple themselves were not religious, and now they become much more religious. How do they change their act, so to speak? So the students went into Rav Aaron Feldman and his wife, Rebson, Israeli lady, very, very, very definite opinions about many things, also very great educated in her own right. So Rav Aaron Feldman and his Rebson were sitting in the house and the students walked in and they put the question to Rav Feldman, should husband and wife show physical affection in front of the children? And exactly the same moment Rav Feldman said no, Rebson Feldman said yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, that was, uh, that was the conversation ended. So I think the correct balance is that yes, they should, in a very refined way, so children see that this is a natural thing to do. Husband comes home from shul on Friday night and gives his wife a delicate peck on the cheek. I think that is perfectly acceptable. But again, it's culturally conditioned. There are some Yiddish-speaking aspects of the religious world today, where, as you know, the men will have a meal in one room and the women in another, if they're guests present. So we, the men maintain extreme separation. There are very good reasons why we don't actually hug and kiss or hold hands in public in general. There are good reasons for that. First of all, it's to a certain degree unrefined due to the menstrual separation laws. There are certain reasons why we do that as well. So to display physical affection in public 
as the non-Jewish or the secular world does, that's not appropriate in our community. But within the privacy and the, the holiness of a Jewish home, a certain amount of that judiciously chosen and culturally appropriate, I think, is probably fine. Great. Two more questions, if I may. Someone asked, how does one protect their child, which is what every parent wants to do, but without overprotecting, without being that helicopter parent who doesn't let their children go away? or Right. This, again, is a question of judgment. Two elements of judgment here are appropriate. One is your own good, solid judgment that should come first. And secondly, what's normal for the social circumstance and the age? If children of that age are going to a sleepaway camp or a place, you know, where they're going to do some physical activity hanging from, you know, ropes and climbing walls, and and if it's appropriate for the age and all the others are doing it and that's under appropriate safety sort of things, to make your child a misfit is unhealthy. In other words, first and foremost, is this objectively okay? And if you feel it's not, even though others may think it is, you have to have the character to say no. But there's a price to be paid for that. Because when you make your child a misfit, everyone else is doing it. And it is a norm. I'm not talking about everyone else doing something ridiculous. I'm not saying every Jewish child should do bungee jumping on a Sunday afternoon. (laughs) But when things are appropriate for the age, under correct guidance and safety mechanisms, even though there may be some risk, but life does have risk, and that is a solid guideline. Let me say it again. First of all, a clear, mature, wise judgment of your own about what's safe and what is not. We're talking about emotionally safe here as well as physically safe. And the second thing is, what's normal for that age of children of that age? If you're a Jewish mother insisting on holding your child's hand when he crosses the road when he's 34 years old, that's <laughs> probably inappropriate. Rav Asher Weiss says that it is normal to undertake some risk kids are going on their scooters and skateboards and so forth and so on and some get injured but you can't stop a child from going on his skateboard or riding his bicycle even though we know some children will get injured if you're going to pr- try to prevent those injuries the price you pay by making your child a bizarre misfit is just not right and therefore there's a level of trust that you need to manifest Hashem is going to take care of your child if you're doing what is responsible and normal will there be injuries unfortunately there will be you have to learn to let go of it. I think you need to learn to let go to the extent that is appropriate for the time and place. Specifically, you can ask about sleepovers, especially in, in today's generation where there's so much, so many weird stories happen. But let's say if most of the class are doing it, can one... Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I think it really depends on the circumstances and the supervision that is provided. Again, my sense is that if it's totally normal, and the price you will pay that your child will be a complete social misfit, then I think you need to take that possibility very seriously. Okay, final question. How does one discipline a strong-willed child without squashing their character? I think we need to talk about this when we talk about individuality in general. I'll say one word about it now, and that is a strong-willed child should be allowed to express their strong will in ways that are appropriate. So when you provide for a child who's very boisterous and strong-willed, and you give them a way to do that, for example, for example, maybe a child like that needs to go to a self-defense class, a judo class, right, or a, a martial arts training session appropriate for the age. Why not? Let them assert themselves with an appropriate opponent. It's very useful. Why not? It's good, healthy activity. Let them do something that uses their natural character and gives a full expression for those needs in an appropriate fashion where they're not using it to bully others, mm-hmm. but they're using it in an appropriate fashion. As the Gemara says, if one is bloodthirsty, one should become a shochet or a moil. Or a surgeon or whatever. Indeed, let them use their talents in that way. Of course, there may still be tension. They may still be trying to express their strong will at home in a way that is a conflict with the parent. I think that takes judicious conflict resolution skills. Where do you need to put your foot down and say no? 
And where can you allow them to do things that are perhaps you might not have done for another child because this is this child's reality? So I think a parent needs to take a step back, or the parents or whoever the authority is, or a classroom situation, for example. Is it really necessary to come into conflict with a child on this particular level? Can we head it off at the past? Can we wait until this phase is over? I think that becomes a personal, a specific diagnosis in a given situation. The thing to resist is the knee-jerk response that if a child has a strong will, I must oppose it. That's not necessary. I'll leave you with this thought. One of the wisest ways to handle conflict resolution is to use judo and not boxing. Boxing is where you hit the other person with brute force in the opposite direction to what he's going. Judo, you simply use his motion to, you know, if he wants to run in this direction, just put your foot out and help him in the same direction. Mm. Judo translates from Japanese as the gentle way. The gentle way. And therefore, when you're dealing with strong-willed people, rather than try to oppose them and have conflict, let them use their will and see if you can channel it or direct it in a, in a useful and productive way. Can you almost trick them into doing that? Well, the word trick in that has a pejorative connotation. Trickery, which is deceptive and negative, perhaps not. But trickery that is a wise (laughs) application of, you know, letting them do what it is that they want to do in a way that is wisely manifest. Indeed, indeed, why not? I would go so far as to say that husband and wife should also use such creative trickery in their own relationship. Why not? Thank you very, very much indeed, Rabbi Tayatz. That brings our Chinuch Child Rearing series to an end. Very much appreciated. And next series will be what we mentioned earlier on individuality. We're going to be talking about, obviously, with children as well, but just in general, in Judaism, how one brings out one's own individuality. Rabbi Menach, could I add one word, if I may? Yeah. All the things we've discussed in the last three sessions, we've discussed it in brief. If our listeners wish, they can go to my website, which is akivatats.com or on the JLE also find a lot of resources where each of these subjects has been developed in a long, at least an hour's lecture on child raising and the principles and individuality. So the aim of these podcasts has been to be succinct and uh, put a lot of material into a short period of time. But for those who have the patience and want to, so we have much more extensive discussions with sources and so on. And I recommend people to take a look at those sources. Okay. Thank you very much, Robert Hats, again. All the best. We'll see you next week. Thank you.